Hi everyone, this is Brant Van Rokel, lead pastor of Christ City Kitsilano, and I want to let you know about a couple of things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us at Fifth Avenue Cinema on Burrard Street at 9.30 a.m. We meet every Sunday morning for worship, word, and sacrament, and we'd love for you to join us there. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church Kitsilano is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to hear more about what God has called us to here in Kitsilano, then please reach out to me at brant at christcitychurch.ca or you can visit christcitychurch.ca slash Kitsilano. The scripture reading today is taken from Matthew 4, 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All this I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan! For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you so much, Van. Good morning. My name is uh, Jonathan, and I'm one of the elders here at Christ City Kitsilano, and I am very excited to be able to bring this text to you this morning, and I'm in fact very excited about this series about the goodness of Jesus. Um, it's always a joy to go through the narratives of the gospel and to learn more about our Savior. Uh, before we do all of that, uh, I need help and so do you, and so we are going to pray and ask the Lord uh, for help that he might give us insight into this passage. Let's pray. Father God, indeed, we need help. We pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would give us insight as we read your word, that it would not only be uh, beautiful and true, and it, it would not only increase our knowledge, but it would land on our hearts that we might know you more intimately. Father, may we see the goodness of Jesus through this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, some of you might know that uh, Karen and I recently repainted our living room. Inspired by our daughter's recent reno of her bedroom, she frankly watches that's a few too many episodes of the Property Brothers. We set out to give a fresh new look on our walls. Now, one of the challenges of painting is coverage. 
particularly when you're trying to paint white top coat over white primer. How does one know that one has comprehensively painted over every last square inch? And to make matters worse, we have literally century-old walls, 100 years old. They're plaster walls, which means that there are not only layers upon layers of paint on the walls with every imaginable ugly color, there are also imperfections. They call it character. Ensuring coverage over these not-so-smooth, cracked walls full of <coughs> character is most definitely challenging. And in many ways, we humans are much the same. We, while we are good and beautiful in one sense, we've been made in the image of God, designed to reflect the glory of God, the presence of sin and evil in our lives, they've tarnished us. They call it character. And over the years, we've attempted do-overs, makeovers, and yet despite our best efforts, we have not been able to comprehensively cover over our imperfections. You know, the cracks, they, they still continue to appear. And on closer inspection, that ugly, old stain of sin, layers deep, it still shines through. We've been in this series called The Goodness of Jesus. And in today's text, I want us to notice two things, two aspects of Jesus' goodness. Jesus' victory over Satan's temptations, they show us, number one, that Jesus willingly and comprehensively fulfills all righteousness. Jesus willingly and comprehensively fulfills all righteousness. And number two, Jesus undeniably proves to be the authentic Son of God. Jesus undeniably proves to be the authentic Son of God. And these two aspects give us great hope. You see, by his obedience, Jesus is the one who can uniquely and comprehensively cover all our sin with his righteousness. To roll with this paint metaphor a bit more. Jesus is the ultimate paint and sealer that covers all the imperfections, breadth and depth, breaking once for all the ugly stain of sin. And to top it off, it is God himself, the master painter, who does the painting. Now, some of you might be wondering, where am I getting all of this? So uh, just a bit of a quick orientation in the text. Last week, we looked at Jesus' baptism, where Matthew reveals these two important points about Jesus' mission intended to frame our understanding, not only of the baptism, but of his whole life, and especially these temptations. And the first is that Jesus fulfills all righteousness. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 15. John the Baptist is rather bewildered that Jesus would seek to be baptized by him. So the text says this, But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. So then he was baptized. 
So Jesus' baptism was the first declaration of his purpose and mission to fulfill all righteousness. And Jesus' successful trials in the wilderness, they further this. And the second is this declaration of his sonship at the end of the passage. And you might recall this dramatic scene, this dramatic scene and this beautiful imagery as Jesus was baptized, the heavens tore open, fulfilling Isaiah 64.1, by the way, the spirit descending like a dove, reminiscent of creation, reminiscent of the peace after Noah's flood. And then this declaration in chapter 3, verse 17, look at it with me. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Our gospel writer, Matthew, he's no painter, but he's definitely a literary genius. Uh, I, know, I just love, by the way, this is kind of a side point, but I love how he begins his gospel with this genealogy, right? In this genealogy, tracing meticulously Jesus' lineage as the son of Abraham, as the son of David, kind of like these paint, layers of paint on the wall. And now here is the father declaring that Jesus is my beloved son. He is the son of God. Now it is relevant because, and I highlight this, because in today's passage, guess what? That's exactly what Satan goes after, right? That's exactly what Satan taunts him with. Notice the repeated refrain of, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, it's peppered throughout. Uh, Look, it wasn't that Satan didn't know that Jesus was the son of God. He had a a rather long time to figure that out. Nor was it the case that Jesus did not know his own identity. Rather, Satan was seeking to tempt Jesus to define his sonship on Satan's terms. Satan was trying to derail the mission of Jesus. And yet Jesus proves himself to fulfill all righteousness, not only by refuting each and every temptation, but by refusing to do anything but submit to the Father's will, thus proving that he is genuinely the Son of God. All right, so that's kind of the preamble. Uh, And so let's look at the first point now that we have the context and frame. Let's, Let's consider more deeply how Jesus fulfills all righteousness in his victory over Satan's temptations. First, he does so willingly. He does so willingly. You know, we think of these temptations, we think of our own temptations uh, as kind of these sort of things that happen to us. But notice something peculiar about verse 1. Verse 1 says this, look, look at it with me. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So Jesus is in the wilderness. He isn't there to go camping. He wasn't some sort of hipster that was trying to discover his identity. Um, He's in the wilderness because the Spirit led him there to be tempted by the devil. Jesus willingly went. Now, if we're really honest, that it's kind of troubling. It's always troubled me. We are confronted with what seems to be this paradox. Why would the, the good spirit, the third person of the Trinity, lead Jesus 
into the wilderness, knowing full well that evil Satan would be there to tempt him. Why would he do that? And yet this apparent contradiction challenges us to look more deeply into God's plan for Jesus and who is actually in control. You see, despite Satan seeming to be in control in this passage, it was actually God who was in control, using Satan's temptations to reveal Jesus' authenticity. In fact, the word translated trial, test, temptation, they're all the same word. It's used in a negative sense when trial entices us to sin and a positive sense when it's a test to prove one's faithfulness or character or authenticity. Though Satan used it in a negative sense, God used it in a positive sense. Though Satan was wanting to provoke a sinful reaction, Jesus willfully responded righteously. And in each of Jesus' responses, he showed unwavering obedience to God, steadfast reliance on God's word. Why? To willfully fulfill all righteousness. Now, we'd be re remiss not to pause even just briefly to consider some of the implications of even just verse 1. Whatever trial you're going through right now, and I know many of you are going through trials, we all go through trials. It can, all, it can be seen in two ways. Negatively, as in Satan is tempting you, or positively, as in God is using it as a test to demonstrate your character, demonstrate his work in you. Which way you and I will see it depends largely on how we respond. And that's why the New Testament writers later on could, could write things like count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. Faith and obedience is recognizing that despite the circumstances, God is in control and that we can faithfully choose his will. But willingly is only one aspect, one angle of how Jesus fulfills his righteousness. Next, we are going to see how Jesus fulfills his righteousness comprehensively. As in, he is tempted in every way, like we read just now, yet without sin. He's tempted in every way, yet without sin. Now, to consider this, we must consider the categories that Satan goes after in tempting Jesus. In every category of the human experience, Jesus fulfills his righteousness. And I found that a very helpful lens is 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. Let's look at it together. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 says this, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Notice the comprehensiveness of John's statement for all that is in the world in relation to the comprehensiveness of Satan's temptations and the comprehensiveness of Jesus' righteousness. And what I hope to demonstrate is that in each of Satan's temptations, 
It attacks one of the areas that John says is from the world and not from the Father. And Jesus refutes them all. So, let's consider the first temptation, where Satan tempts Jesus with the desires of the flesh. Look with me at chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he, meaning Jesus, was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now surely Jesus was hungry. He was suffering. Back in the day, I was part of a church that uh, participated in World Vision's 30-hour famine. I quickly discovered that it is difficult going without food for 30 hours. I can only imagine how much more difficult it would be to go without food for 40 days and 40 nights. Surely the, this, the, the juices of Jesus' stomach would have churned. Now in his flesh, Jesus was weak. He was exhausted. He was hungry. But notice how Satan frames the situation to Jesus. First, Satan appealed to his identity and power. He says, if you are the Son of God, then do this. Turn these stones into bread. And second, he frames Jesus' suffering as a problem. And that's kind of key. You see, during the 30-hour famine, some youth would inevitably come up to me and complain. This is a problem. I am going to die if I go another minute without food. And Satan likewise was tempting Jesus, saying, in effect, if you don't do something about this problem, you will die. Satan was tempting Jesus to do something in his own strength outside of his relationship with his father to solve his problem. Did you notice the insidious framing of the situation? You see, Jesus was capable to miraculously produce food. You just have to look at the feeding of the 5,000 to know that that is a, uh, it's a genuine power that he has. And so in that sense, it's a genuine temptation. He had the ability, he had the means to do it, and yet... Jesus resisted the temptation to use his power and his agency outside of his father's will. Jesus refused to let Satan frame the situation. And he responded, in effect, no, God's beloved son submits to the father's will. He lives on every word that proceeds from his mouth. He's the one through his spirit that led me into the situation and he is faithful to be with me in my suffering. One theologian put it this way. Suffering is not a question which demands an answer. It is not a problem which demands a solution. It is a mystery which demands a presence. Do you see that this was more than just about food? In overcoming this temptation, Jesus demonstrated his victory 
over the lusts of the flesh, the illicit desire to see a situation merely with his fleshly eyes, and to do something apart from God's will. When my son Eric was a toddler, this is quite a while ago, we witnessed an incident that is now all too familiar to young parents. You see, we had purchased some candies from the store and told him that he was not allowed to eat them without our permission. And one day, as we were cleaning the house, we noticed candy wrappers stashed in the oddest of places. <laughs> one sat crumpled behind the TV, another in the bathroom drawer, another beside his bed. After checking that Karen wasn't pregnant again, we suspected it was Eric, and yet he denied it. He would later eventually, eventually confess. Now, now notice here that it wasn't the candy itself that was sinful, nor was it his desire for it. Rather, it was his lust for it, his fleshly framing of the problem and the exercise of his agency and power to satisfy that lust that led him to sin. And he circumvented our will by hiding it and lying about it afterward. Look, we all face this regularly. We are all regularly tempted in our flesh to do things apart from God's will, both in negative situations like suffering and in positive situations. Even things that we consider good. Consider some of our most common bodily lusts. Sexual lusts, excessive food. All of these things are actually perversions of good things. Sex, for instance, is a beautiful act designed by God to be used exclusively within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. Food is a delicious thing designed to sustain our bodies that we might glorify him. And yet we are tempted constantly to manipulate, to do something apart from God's will, to exercise our power and agency apart from God's will. Okay, so we've seen how Satan attacks the lust of the flesh and how Jesus fulfills all righteousness comprehensively by relying faithfully upon his Father. In the second temptation, we see that Satan attacks the desire of the eyes, this illicit desire to have something apart from God's will. Let's look at verses 5 through 7 together. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, there it is again, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In short, the devil was asking Jesus to be a daredevil, to throw himself down from the top of the temple overlooking Jerusalem, some 450 feet above the Kidron Valley, in order to be rescued by angels, thus creating this massive feast for the eyes, for those watching below. Sort of like a divine Cirque du Soleil, 
This idea was to place Jesus at the center of what would have been the uh, center of the theological world at that time, in the, in the center of Jerusalem, at the highest point in Jerusalem. And then tempt Jesus to use this spectacle to illicitly claim the nations as his own and to rule them. It was a, in other words, it was a temptation to gain a messianic following in a very dramatic way. But that would not be the kind of Messiah that Jesus was. Jesus would later be brought to another tall point, to another pinnacle outside of the city of Jerusalem. Not to be looked upon as a political Messiah, but mocked as the crucified Messiah, where passers-by would wag their heads and mock Jesus, saying, Save yourself! If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Matthew twenty-seven thirty-nine. Do you hear the echo? Do you hear the echo of this passage? Even then, he could have summoned more than 12 legions of angels to rescue him. But he didn't. He was steadfastly committed to doing God's will. And in obedience to his father, even to the point of death, Philippians 2 says, God raised him up so that one day at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How is this applicable to us? Well, besides the lusts of seeking to do something apart from God's will, consider that we so often want to have something apart from God's will. And we do so by living, by operating by sight and not by faith. We want the certainty and the control of sight without the submission and the trusting of faith. We want righteousness apart from Jesus. We want salvation without the cross. We want godliness without obedience. We want recognition in people's eyes, not absolution in God's eyes. Notice, by the way, how Satan uses partial truths from God's word as an instrument to manipulate Jesus. He actually quotes scripture. It's, for, it's a form of the original temptation. Didn't God say? Did God really say? He was trying to manipulate Jesus into demonstrating his trust in God in a spectacular way to challenge God's faithfulness. <clears throat> Satan tempted Jesus to test God. Satan was tempting Jesus to act as if God was there to serve him. Jesus steadfastly refused. Testing is not trusting. Trusting is knowing God's character, knowing the full counsel of his, of his word, and believing it to be true. And certainly one of the obvious warnings from this passage is that we must know the word of God well, and we must refute uh, Satan's lies. We must wrestle with the full counsel of his word. 
not verses taken out of context. Satan, of course, doesn't stop at the second temptation. And Jesus permits him to continue in order to demonstrate his comprehensive fulfillment of righteousness. So in the third temptation, the narrative climbs to a climax where Satan appeals to the pride of life, the desire to be something apart from God's will. Look with me at verses 8 through 11. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All of these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Friends, one day Jesus will be given all the kingdoms of the world. In fact, the kingdom of God will prevail when all other kingdoms are vanquished. We saw that just earlier when I, I, I paraphrased Philippians 2. We also read about this in Revelation. And yet here Satan was offering Jesus a shortcut without having to experience its unpleasant elements. He was offering the age-old diabolical doctrine of, well, the end justifies the means. You know, when I was younger, my parents uh, gave me a Rubik's Cube. Now, I understood the goal of a Rubik's Cube. We turn all of the colors and all the respective si uh, sides to the respective colors, sorry. But unlike some of the whiz kids that are in this congregation, my method involved peeling and rearranging stickers. <laughs> Though I achieved the end, I completely missed the point. You see, I sought the pride and glory. I sought the pride and glory of being able to say that I achieved the goal without the work of figuring it out. Satan was offering all of the kingdoms of the world and all of the glory that came with being king without the necessity of the cross. Satan was appealing to Jesus' pride. Satan was enticing him to consider perhaps there's an independent way to the end apart from the Father's will. And all Jesus had to do was to bow down and worship Satan. Satan tested Jesus' loyalty to his father and his father's will. Think about it for a second. Let's suppose that Jesus actually did succumb to Satan. Had Jesus succumbed to the temptation, he actually might be world ruler, but he'd also be Satan's slave. And the irony is that he would not have inaugurated the kingdom of God. And that means that people like you and me would still be dead in our sins and we would not be here today worshipping our Lord and Savior. He would have missed the point. Now this third temptation is perhaps the most insidious because it tempted his pride. Are we not all tempted in the same way? To be something or someone that we are not yet? 
to bow to idolatrous desires, thinking that it is, it is a shorter means to an end, to think that we know better than God? Well, thanks be to God, Jesus resolutely, steadfastly refused. And in so doing, he fulfilled once again his righteousness. And in this climatic end, Jesus needed only to say, Be gone, Satan. And Satan, knowing full well who Jesus really is, that is the Son of God, complies. He must. God is still God. God is still sovereign. Jesus underscores the point by both saying and doing, It is written. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And so we've seen Jesus fulfills his righteousness comprehensively. He was tempted in every way, in every category of sin, in every conceivable way that humans are, uh, experience temptation, that humans experience sin in the lust of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, and yet he was without sin. Praise be to God. But there's one more dimension to his comprehensiveness that I want to highlight. He comprehensively fulfills all righteousness by surpassing every historical figure in the Bible, and in so doing, Jesus undeniably proves to be the authentic Son of God. This is our second point. Just by way of very quick illustration, yesterday many of us witnessed the coronation of King Charles III. And one of the beauties of the coronation, regardless of what you think of um, King Charles, is that it's a continuation of a line of, of um, monarchs. And here, in some sense, Jesus is saying that he is the continuation, and yet he is the final fulfillment of that. Jesus himself clues us into this by his use of the Old Testament. When Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy 8.3 in verse 4, and Deuteronomy 6.16 in verse 7, and Deuteronomy 6.13 in verse 10, he was signaling something very important. When he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, it's meant to signal to the, the hearer at that time, they would recognize that it was a correlation to Israelites 40 years in the wilderness. You see, the Israelites were known as God's people. Israel was known as God's other son. And if you remember the Exodus story, that's God through the hand of Moses leading the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt into the through the wilderness into the promised land you might recall that they sinned along the way deuteronomy is a recap of this exodus story and a stern reminder to the israelites about the lessons learned jesus's temptations correspond surprise to the three major tests of the israelites in the first the israelites were tested through hunger and God's miraculous, miraculous provision of manna. Look with me at Exodus 16.3 as they complained to Moses and grumbled against God. And the people of Israel said to them, that's Moses and Aaron, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. 
For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Doesn't this rhetoric sound familiar? It's a problem. We're going to die. Moses, do something. In the second test, the Israelites had tested God at Massa, demanding water, questioning whether the Lord was really among them. Exodus 17, 7. And of course, in the third incident, there is the great golden calf, where the Israelites sinned by worshiping the golden calf instead of the Lord God. Where God's son Israel failed, Jesus, the son of God, prevailed. Where Satan taunted Jesus by saying, if you are the son of God, Jesus proved to actually be the son of God by doing his father's will. Where Satan prompted Jesus to illicitly gain authority through devil worship, Jesus demonstrated his genuine authority as the Son of God by commanding Satan to be gone. But wait, there's more. It's like a late night infomercial. Jesus proves to be the authentic Son of God fulfilling all righteousness by being better than Adam. And in fact, every son of Adam, every ancestor listed in Matthew's genealogy. Did you notice that in every temptation and every category that these were the same categories that tempted Adam and Eve, that tempted Abraham, that tempted Jacob and Esau and David and so on and so forth? Was not the original temptation in the garden also a form of take and eat? Was not Esau tempted to... Um, Esau and Jacob tempted to, to toy with their birthrights because of food. Isn't there a lie that we can do somehow better than God by succumbing to our lusts? Did Eve not succumb to the desire of the eyes, seek to have something apart from God's will? Did Satan not taunt her with the delight of the eyes and the pride of life, saying, your eyes will be opened? and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's an interesting contrast. So Adam and Eve were in an idyllic environment, in the Garden of Eden, and in the constant presence of God. Guess what? They failed. They ate the forbidden fruit. They disobeyed the Father's will. They plunged all of humanity into sin. That's why we're in this big mess to begin with. And Jesus, yet Jesus, in the barrenness of wilderness... He prevailed. He comprehensively fulfilled all righteousness, proving himself to be the authentic Son of God. Well, it's time to conclude my sermon here. This passage is often preached as an example of how to overcome temptation. And that's not wrong. It is not any less than that. Jesus did indeed offer us an example of how to resist Satan. As Christians, we must know the scriptures. And we must refute temptation with scripture. We must also know our purpose as Christians. Our mission as Christians. And steadfastly, resolutely carry that out. 
Jesus' continual submission to the Father's will is a tremendous example that we can glean, that we can follow. But as I've sought to demonstrate, it is much more than mere example. It's hope. There is hope in this passage. Because the reality is that we are not Jesus. We still face temptations and we succumb to them. While we can aspire to be like Jesus, we are hopelessly lost without him. We are meant to see that Jesus was indeed tempted in every way, yet without sin, as we read in Hebrews. We are meant to see that Jesus indeed, indeed did fulfill all righteousness. We are meant to see that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. In other words, we are meant to see his goodness. That means that if you are united with Christ this morning, that means your faith is in him. You have confessed that you are a sinner. You can't do this on your own. That you need Jesus. He comprehensively covers your sin. And that's great news. There isn't a category of sin that he has not experienced and that he has not died for. That's really good news. Look, Satan's lies to make us think that somehow we have uniquely stumbled upon some temptation that Jesus has not experienced. That perhaps you've come across like the one sin that Jesus' righteousness didn't cover. And that is a lie. That's a lie, brothers and sisters. The truth is, Jesus has covered it all. And that is good. That's really good. But there's more. Some of you come from checkered past. Perhaps you're the son of so-and-so. And that so-and-so is so shameful that it's not even worth mentioning. It's shameful even to mention. Jesus comprehensively covers over your past, including every sinful ancestor, because he is the authentic Son of God who has comprehensively fulfilled all righteousness. And if you are united with him this morning, if your faith is in him this morning, it means that you are undeniably adopted into his family. You are a beloved son or daughter of the king. But more so, the gospel is not just about him atoning for your sin. It's about him giving you his righteousness. And so let's end with this verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see the good news in that? Jesus' perfect comprehensive righteousness has been imputed given to you 
exchanged for your sin. God looks upon you now and does not see the failures of Adam. He does not see the failures of Israel or of your grandfather or of your father or of your parents or of you. No. Jesus, God sees Jesus' perfect, comprehensive righteousness. And what's more, Jesus has now broken the power of sin, which means that our character is not static. The master painter is at work, and he is good. We too can overcome our temptations when they come, when we face them. Why? Because man does not live by bread alone, but by the bread of life, that's Jesus. By Jesus, the fulfillment of the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you have not left it up to us. in order to come to you. That it is because of your son's great goodness, comprehensive righteousness, tempted in every way, yet without sin. His atonement for us and his righteousness given to us that we can approach you, <laughs> that we can have a relationship with you that we, those who are united with Christ, can be called sons and daughters. What a glorious truth. Lord, would you help us bathe in that beauty, admire that truth, and would you give us strength as we are tempted each day in our moment-by-moment temptations that we would persevere, that we would do nothing but submit to your will. That those temptations then would be tests of authenticity. That it would reveal your work in us, your spirit in us and work. Thank you for these great narratives that we can read and the truth that they bring out. Thank you that in your word we can know about your goodness. Father, we praise you for that. We worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen.